The Talking Football Podcast is brought to you by On The Team Sheet. If you're looking for some Christmas gift inspiration, then get yourself onto their Instagram page or their Etsy site. They produce cracking, high-quality prints of classic football team kits. Wherever your team, you'll find it here. And get yourself 10% off with the code TALKINGFOOTBALL. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 83 of the Talking Football Podcast in association with On The Team Sheet. My name's Derek Clark and every week we try and bring you a top class interview with some of the most colourful and interesting characters involved in the game. This week it was an absolute pleasure to spend time chatting to Dunfermline goalkeeping legend Ian Westwater. Ian was in great form as he looked back on his 20 years in the game from starting out at Hearts, his two spells at East End Park as well as his time at Falkirk and Hibs as well. So Sit back and enjoy the latest episode of the Talking Football Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Talking Football Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to say we're joined on the line this week by an Infermline legend and former Hearts goalkeeper as well, Ian Westwater. Ian, thank you very much for, for coming on the, the podcast. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. Forgot to mention as well, Falkirk yeah, goalkeeper as well. Well uh, loved there at, uh, at Falkirk as well. Ian, it's great to have you on. Um, before we look back at the, the, the career, of course, we're speaking off air about the, the coronavirus affecting uh, everyone in the, in the world at the moment. In terms of yourself, Ian, how are you affected by it all? Well, uh, sadly, it has affected me quite significantly. Um, like a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, two of my closest colleagues at work have, have passed away with it uh, very early on in, in March. And then from a, a professional point of view, the company that I work for, FES, up in Stirling, um, we look after facilities management for a lot of companies. And uh, back in March, uh, we were asked to, to be involved in the NHS Louisa Jordan Hospital, which is the... Uh, Scotland's equivalent of Nightingale Hospitals in, in England. And uh, I mobilised the hard services for that for the six months from March through to August. And uh, so that was very much full on. But it was a fantastic achievement from everybody, Derek, because it was, a, a, you know, the, the hospital was built in the SEC in 19 days. Um, and thankfully, it hasn't had to receive any COVID patients. But it's been used as a, an outpatient hospital and training hospital for, since that time. So it's been a fantastic achievement from everybody. But like everybody, it's, uh, it's taken a, a big effect on everybody's uh, daily lives. And God forbid everybody stays safe and comes out the back of it as best they can. But it's, 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 it's a tragic uh, situation for everybody, unfortunately. Yeah, well, it absolutely is. Um... Looking at the career then, Ian, uh, great career in the game, of course. You were born in uh, Loughborough, is that right, in 1963? Aye, it was, it was a wee quirk of fate. My, my mum and dad both originally from Glasgow. Uh, my dad actually played uh, senior for a, a couple of years. He was at Queen of the South and uh, Arbroath. Uh, but his main football career was at Ashfield uh, Juniors in Glasgow. Um, but he was a printer and bookbinder to trade and his job took him down south and uh, so I was born in Loughborough of all places and then uh, moved to Wolverhampton and then Stoke-on-Trent and then moved up to Edinburgh in 1972. Um, so I, I spent most of my, my sort of, uh, school life in, just in the outskirts of Edinburgh. But I, so and my, 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 a quick quirk of my football career, Derek, 
Um, I've got a, a couple of wee quirky ones for you. Hopefully, we we'll get through them today. But um, my, my my dad, my dad, and uh, my granddad were were good Ranger supporters back in the day, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I played first team football for 20 years, you know, from 1980 to, to 2000, and uh, had the privilege and the luck to to play against every team in Scotland home and away in my eras, yeah. and I beat every team home and away in my era, apart from Rangers. And my, <laughs> and my dad, my dad always says, he says that was the football and gods looking down at me, saying that I drew with them a few times, but never actually managed to beat them. The only times that. Uh, the teams that I was involved uh, beat Rangers. I was injured both times, so maybe that, that's the telling you when you want to know. I don't know. That's a good pub question, that Ian, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's one for the anoraks, that one. Yes, I definitely. Um, did you always want to be a, a goalie then? But when you started off playing football, was that always the dream? Well, it's funny because I've got an older brother and uh, another wee quirk, which is quite interesting, I suppose. But my dad, my dad played in goals. He was a goalkeeper. Yeah. And uh, my, my older brother, uh, he played outfield. Uh, he's he's two years older than me. Um, but for, for some reason, I always wanted to be a goalie. And I, I, I didn't play, I've never ever played outfield in my life, apart from one instant, which I'll probably tell you about later on. But um, <laughs> uh, even in training, I wasn't one of these goalies that always wanted to play outfield. I always wanted to be in goals. But a wee quirk of that, that story was um, my brother played uh, for Salveson Boys Club, as I did in, in Edinburgh. And um, when he finished playing in uh, under 18 level, he signed for Dunbar Juniors, uh, Dunbar United Juniors. And he had a couple of uh, seasons there. But at the same time, my dad was running our local primary school football team. And um, anyway, long story short, it was my, uh, my dad was looking for a referee to, to referee his games on a Saturday morning. And my brother said, I no problem. He says, I'll do it. And he got the real bug for refereeing. So he gave, he gave up uh, junior football with Dunbar United and, and, and so was fast-tracked on the, the referees' side of things. But uh, he, he, his job again took him down south, but the season that he was uh, made up to grade three, which would be running the line in the professional game, yeah. he went down south and he only ever was on the line for one pre-season game that I played at uh, Dunfermline. I was at uh, Harps and he was at uh, uh, sorry, I was at Dunfermline. We played Hearts at Tinkers, and he ran the line. And I can't think of too many other brothers that have, have been in that situation where one's a, a player and one's a referee. Um, yeah, I, can't, I think there's only been one. I think the McLean brothers. I think, but apart from that, it's quite an unusual uh, situation to arise. Absolutely is, yeah, definitely. Um, so I mean, uh, playing goals as a youngster did. Um, Hearts, of course, came in and picked you up. And was it is it seventy nine you joined them? Or how how did that come about? So again, it was a bit of a long story. But um, I I signed for Salveson Boys Club, which is a successful boys club in Edinburgh in, in nineteen seventy five, I think. Yeah. Um, I seventy five. And at that time, unknown to me at that time, we were we went on to have a fantastic uh, success with Salvas and Boys Club. So my team, and bear in mind that I'm talking about the 70s here, so it wasn't big squads. It was literally only 14 or 15 players yeah. uh, at the Boys Club at that time. And uh, we went on to win the Edinburgh Juvenile League, the East of Scotland Cup and the Scottish Cup five years running. And wow. we lost four games in those five, uh, five uh, years. And I wasn't playing in three of those games because I was playing for the Scotland uh, schoolboys in uh, under 15 level. 
and that that so there was a lot because of the success that we had there was a lot of scouts came to our games and um eventually uh, and again this is this is this maybe sounds a bit boring but it kind of gives a, a wee flavor of what was happening but the the the, the season uh, under 15 level the, the summer holidays um this was my summer holidays um first week i went to rangers for a week's trial the second week i went to celtic the third week i went to aberdeen the fourth week i went to dundee united the fifth week i went to manchester united and the sixth week I went to Arsenal. And it was my mum that says to my dad at the time, you know, this is crazy. You know, Ian just needs to sort of sort of, you know, get get a, a direction where he wants to go because, you know, everything's, you know, private life, uh, work, uh, sorry, school life's getting affected. And uh, he probably just needs to sign. And at that time, Willie Ormond was the manager at Hearts and he was signing, uh, you know, all the good talent in the local area. Yeah. So I signed for Hearts um, at the same time as Gary McKay yeah. and, and John Robertson. Yeah. And then latterly, uh, David, David Bowman was going to sign for Spurs, but he ended up signing for Hearts as well. So, so the four of us ended up signing um, the same day with another uh, player, of, a teammate of ours at Salveson, a lad called Stuart Gold. And we, went, uh, we all signed on the same day and started at Hearts in June 1980. So that, that was that was our sort of career into into Hearts. Yeah, now, you mentioned there Willie Ormond. Of course, he was in charge of Scotland, wasn't he? What what what, what, what sort of what was he like to to, to work under? Well, to, to be fair, unfortunately, by the time I, I went full time at Hearts, uh, Willie had left the club. Mm. So I signed as a schoolboy in '79. Yeah, and uh, went in full time in the June of 1980. And at that time, uh, Willie had left the the, the club and Bobby Monker had uh, become the manager. And Bobby Bobby was the uh, ex-Newcastle captain and Scotland player and uh, I, so he he said, but his his big thing was to give youth a chance. So that season, um, Gary McKay made his debut, David Bowman was the first of us to make his his debut. Uh, And believe it or not, I, I made my debut in the November of that year. Um, all of us 16 years old playing in the Premier League, and I wow. think I think and I, somebody's a lot of people mentioned this to me that I'm I'm the youngest goalkeeper ever to play in the Premier League wow. for, for for any club for yeah. any club. So uh, so I so um, it, you know and that's probably why my dad asked me you know wanted me to sign for Hearts because they were. Um, Given all the youth players a, a chance because obviously they could they afford you know the yeah. signing the big players like the Rangers and Celtics and Aberdeen's of this world were signing so so that 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 was my that was the first season now. Can you remember much about your, your debut in? Because um, Gooden's a young kid yeah. that age. I mean, did you have any nerves at all or anything like that, or did you just sort of take it in your stride? No, I, I did. I must admit, I had you know a lot of nerves. I've been playing for the the Scottish youth team and the Scotland yeah. School Boys and. Uh, Another sort of funny one was uh, because juvenile football, the season goes on forever, you know, and there's about a million cups you play from because we were so successful. We were in every cup final. So um, I signed for Hearts as obviously a schoolboy, but we're still playing for Salveson Boys Club. And then um, we were going all in full time in the middle of June, I think it was, in 1980. So we were still playing boys club football uh, in June to finish off the, the season of all these cups. 
So I, I finished playing, uh, all of us played a game against, uh, kind of, I think it was North Merson Boys Club, and we beat them in a, at least the Scotland Cup final, down at Leith Links, literally in front of two men and a dug. You know, it was that type of thing. <laughs> and then, then less, less than four weeks later, um, I played, and I think Dave and Gary played as well, um, in the East of Scotland Cup for Hearts against Hibs at Tynecastle, and there was 26,000 there. Wow. And I was a first team that was a first team game, you know, it was a first team game. Yeah. So it was uh, just dropped in at the deep end. But you are saying about my debut, um, our captain at the time was uh, uh, Jim Jeffries, yeah. who obviously went on and had a, a fantastic football career and managerial career. Yeah. Um, and he was our captain. And I remember the very, very first uh, touch of a, a ball I had in, in uh, first team football was we were playing St. Mirren at Tynecastle. And you, you can imagine their eyes must have lit up when they see a 16-year-old kid as a goalie. You know, um, there, there was, there was you, you probably wouldn't remember these names, Derek, but it was Peter Weir and Ian Scanlon with the, the, and Frank McGarvey with the, the top players at that time. Uh, Tony Fitzpatrick, you know, you know Simon had a decent side in, yeah. in the, the 80s. So anyway, um, they get a corner in the first minute and uh, Peter Weir swings it right in on top of me. Uh, the near post, I come out and punch it, um, knock the St. Mirren player flying, but also Jim Jeffries flying. And Jeff turns around to me, and I'll know, tell you exactly the words he, he, he chose, but anyway, he turns around and says, well done, big man, he says, but shout the next time. But obviously a couple of adjectives in front of that as well, you know. Yeah. So that was my first, and we, ended, and we drew one each after that. So, uh, I, so it was, it was, that was my debut. Magic. Um, you touched on uh, a few minutes ago about um, joining at the same time the likes of John Robertson and Gary Mackay and Dave Bowman and that. Of course, they go on and have terrific careers. Ian, did, did were you sort of? Did you know back then that they were really talented boys? Oh, absolutely. You know, when when I joined Salvation Boys Club, you know, under twelve level and whatever year it was, seventy five, seventy six, whenever it was, can't remember. Um, there was one player that absolutely stood out, and it was Gary, Gary McKay. And um, at that time, he was getting touted to go down to Manchester United. Wow. And um, so he was down there, you know, a couple of times a year, you know, school holidays. And that's where I went down there uh, for a week as well, you know, at one time, under 15 level. Yeah. But uh, Gary was the sort of uh, the main guy, but through the, through the football career, through our kind of path with the boys club, um, David, David Bowman, um, came to the fore as well, but we had a really strong midfield. Well, to, to be fair, Derek, we had a fantastic team, and, and the team literally picked itself. Yeah. Um, out of the 11 players, uh, I think nine of us went full-time, and uh, two, three others went part-time, and one chose to go uh, an academic route, so his mum and dad decided that you know uh, f professional football wasn't for him. But uh, aye, so it was... It was it was a fantastic career. The other lad that doesn't really get a mention um, of that era was so there was five of us that went full time with Hearts. There was myself, David Bowman, Gary McKay, John Robertson, and then a lad called Stuart Gold. And I don't know whether you know anything about Stuart, but Stuart um, was at Hearts for four or five years. But he, he was thick thin. He was you know he was about nine stones soaking wet, but he was six foot. You know, and he played he played at the back. And the manager at that time was out at McDonald's. And Alex says to me, he says, you know, they did everything to try and put some, some weight on him and a bit of bulk, but he just couldn't do it. Anyway, long story short, he got released. And um, he went over to uh, play in the League of Ireland for Derry City. 
Yeah. And, and Stuart ended up having a fantastic career over in, in Ireland and won, uh, I think, player of the year in Ireland a few times and things yeah. like that. So, and became captain of Derry City. So, you know, it was a wee bit of a, whilst he didn't um, make the career at Hearts that he wanted to, but he had a fantastic career over in Ireland, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so that, that, that team, you know, Gary was a stick out of that team. We, John Robertson, he, he ended up only playing for us for a couple of seasons. Then he went to a diner because he was a, a year younger than us. Yeah. But uh, Davey and Gary um, were, were stick outs all the time, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned Jim Jeffries. Uh, what was he like as, as a captain? Was he one of those to get right in sort of uh, in your face and all that sort of stuff? Was he one of those? Well, again, it was one of these situations where, um, the, as as the kids, we were apprentices at the time. You know, yeah. even though some of us had played in the first team, we 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 got changed in a separate dressing room, so we didn't really get to know too much about you know, the, the first team players, other than they, we, we all were a bit in awe of them, to be fair. But uh, Jeff was, you know, I'll be honest with you, Jeff played how he managed. He was hard as nails, you know, didn't take any prisoners, um, decent enough player. Um, but I, you know, he, 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 he wasn't, I can't remember him being very, you know, talkative and, and you know how boisterous, you know, the dressing rooms get, you've got big, big characters. Yeah. He, he wasn't that type of guy, he was probably more mature, I think, than some of the time, but uh, aye, but um, good captain for the club and then obviously, you know, fantastic manager going forward as well. Yeah. When you were in there, um, of course, they had, uh, am I right in thinking, it was it Thompson Allen and was it John Bruff, the two senior goalies there, did they, did they help you? <laughs> Oh, brilliant! I, I mean, I, I, again, it shows my age here, Derek. But you know, there's no such thing as a goalie coach. Yeah. You know, when I signed for Hearts, and this, this this is genuine, by the way. When I signed for Hearts full time, so there was Bobby Monker was the manager. Yeah. Um, uh, try to think what the, the coach's name is. Tony Ford was his assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody Rennie, God, that's terrible. I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> he was the first team coach. And then the Andy Stevenson was the physiotherapist and the kit man, and he he had a combined role, and that was it. There was no there was nobody else. There was no sports scientist, no nutritionist, no uh, video analysis, no no nothing basically. Yeah. You know, um, and that was for thirty six players. You know, so it was it was really so we didn't have a goalie coach. So uh, John Bruff was a young goalkeeper at the time. Bruffy was only. 21, I think, or 20 when I signed, and he was a Scotland under 21 goalie. Um, so Hearts had the Scotland under 21 goalie and the under 18 goalie, which was myself at the yeah. time. So, uh, and then Tommy Allen came in later on in the, the career as a sort of part time player. So, um, and we just got on with it. And uh, Ronnie McLafferty was uh, another goalie that was their young, younger lad. So, it was, it was a relatively inexperienced goalkeeping crew. So, we just got on with it ourselves, basically. So, but I enjoyed it. You know, Bruffy was Bruffy was a fantastic character, um, a real funny, funny guy, and uh, and also a very uh, decent goalie as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned about the goalie coach. We had uh, Bob Bolson on back a few months ago, and he said Stop he was that. one of the first goalie coaches in the UK when he when he was a goalie coach at Arsenal. And you think, I mean, and that was in the what the the, the late eighties, nineties, and you're thinking. It's, it's, it's mad to think now that never had goalie coaches. What did they do? Just fire shots at you every training session? Well, I mean, quite literally. I mean, if you had the luxury of not 
just getting involved with the outfield training. Um, you just made your, you know, did your own, your own stuff. Yeah. Um, and but I mean, it quite literally was was, you know, old school. Let's bat the balls. There was no, there was no consideration for the goalies, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was all about outfield players. How, yeah. what they, and we used to say, well, a lot of the stuff that was done at that time was quite falsest in terms of sort of real game perspective. Yeah. You know, so you know, you're smashing balls from about six yards and then saying, Why was the goalie making any saves? Well, of course he's not gonna make any saves because you know it's it's an unrealistic uh situation to, to put yourselves in. But and that's why as I used to say, you know, I enjoyed the goalkeeping side of it, the goalkeeping coaching of it. And I, I, I was lucky, I suppose, in so much my dad was an ex goalie. Yeah. So he could give he could give me feedback all the time about you know my games because he quite literally didn't miss a game virtually my whole football career. Um, so he he and he was my biggest critic as well as you know my biggest fan. So I was lucky in that respect. But on a day to day day basis, it was nothing. You just got you just got on with it, you know. <laughs> and I mean, you you were there at Hearts for quite a, quite a good number of years, Ian. But um, of course, back then. You never really get much opportunities to play. Was that the, that the reason you decided to, to leave in the end? Well, I, again, the, the situation was um, one of the things that in football you have absolutely no um, control over. So, as I said, I, I made my debut for Hearts in, in November of 1980. Yeah. had a couple of games there and Bruffy then came back in. And then later on that season, I, I was playing... Excuse me. I was playing for the Scottish uh, professional youth team over in a tournament in France. Yeah. And uh, we'd drawn drawn with East Germany, I think, and drawn with Italy. And the final game we were playing was um, against Brazil uh, in the group qualifying match. And um, so we were drawing one each with Brazil, and uh, it was absolutely throwing it down the rain, Derek. It was coming from the heavens, and uh, last minute of the game one of their players slid the ball into the box and, and it wasn't even a 50-50, it was probably a 60-40 for me yeah. and I've slid out, taken the ball and the guy's done me and uh, I, I I got carted off, I wasn't even up the um, the tunnel, uh, Big Gordon Marshall, Big Marsh yeah. came on uh, as, as the sub and um, I wasn't even up the tunnel and the referee blew for full time. So that's how close I was to not getting the injury. Yeah. But then um, it, they realised it was a really serious injury at that time and it, it ended up being uh, a complete rupture of the posterior cruciate ligament. And so I got I got taken back to, to Scotland, straight into to the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Um, surgeon had one look at it and uh, did a, a, an emergency operation. I, I woke up from the anaesthetic with my leg and plastered up to my hip. And the very first thing he says to me, was, uh, I'm sorry, son, he said, I don't think you'll ever play football again. Oof. He says, uh, it's a really bad injury. And, uh, and I remember his words verbatim. He says to me, the only way you'll get back playing is three things. One, because you're a goalkeeper and not an outfield player. If you're an outfield player, no chance. Mm -hmm. Two, it's your left knee and you're right-footed. And if it was your right knee, again, no chance. And the third thing, which was quite an interesting one, he called it a virgin knee. He says, because you haven't had any wear and tear on it, because you were only 17 at the time, yeah. you had just turned 17, he says, uh, you don't have any of the, the, the legacy issues of if it had happened 10 years into a professional football career with all the wear and tear and, and other injuries. 
However, he says, however, if you do get back playing, and he says it's a big, big if, he says, I guarantee you'll have to have a knee replacement by the time you're 40. So uh, I did get back playing. Um, and again, I just want to give a wee mention to somebody here that uh, yeah. I, I'm forever in, in my debt for. I mentioned earlier uh, a wee guy called Andy Stevenson, who was the physio at Hearts and the kit man at Hearts. At that time, because there was no internet and your, your, you know, your, your background knowledge of football was fairly limited, I, I didn't know who Andy was, but Andy was um, Jock Steen's trainer when he was at uh, Dunfermline, when Dunfermline won the cup in 1961. Yeah. And uh, Andy was old school, you know, literally the, the bag man, you know, the old yeah. sponge man kind yeah, of the magic guy. Sponge guy. The magic sponge guy. And <laughs> um, when Andy's, you know, Andy was very much into his, uh, you know, twilight of his career in football at that time, you know, he'd be, you know, well into his 60s, I presume, at that time. And he says to me, he says, right, Westy, he says, uh, we've got to work hard. He says, I'll work you really, really hard. And he says, um, I'll get you fit. And he says, but he says, it'll be a hard road. And I was out for a year, virtually a year, and it was only Andy Stevenson that got me back uh, playing again. And I, I, I owe him my whole career. And Andy is a little bit of a forgotten hero in football. Uh, and he passed away just recently, but uh, one of life's good guys. Um, but I, I'm a lovely guy. But so, so going back to the point about you know why I left uh, Hearts. Yeah. So at that time, um, Hearts had to sign another goalkeeper, and they signed Henry Smith. Yeah. And Henry came in from Leeds. Henry was 26, so he was uh, approximately 10 years older than me. Um, and as as we all know about Hearts history, Henry came in. Uh, established himself in the first team and uh, went on to have a fantastic career at Hearts in the goals. I got back fit again uh, and tried to get you know back into the first team, but uh, Alan McDonald was the the manager by this time, and we Doddy used to say you know to to both of us, he's got the best of both worlds. He's got a, an experienced goalkeeper that's played really well, and he says he's got a young kid that's that's champing a bit to play, so he's got the best best of both worlds. But of course. With a goalie, you either play or you don't play. You know, you don't, you, you can't fit in a different position. So it was a wee bit frustrating for me. So when Dunfermline and Jim Leishman came uh, calling a couple of years later, I jumped to the chance. To be fair, yeah, absolutely. And um, I've got in touch on obviously the, the injury. Ian, how tough was that? Like you said, you could remember the uh, the doctor telling you verbatim about uh, your chances of getting back. Were you, were you contemplating at that point a, a different career path and what have you? Well, I think I think you have to again go back to my dad. My, my dad, um, he, he always tells a funny story when he was playing for Asheville Juniors. So he, he was doing quite well at this point, and there was a few scouts coming to the to the Asheville Juniors game. So after this game, and my dad had done particularly well, um, he got called into the manager's office. And before the game, there was rumours around that uh, the Celtic scout was coming to to watch the game. So anyway. You know, so the manager asked my dad to come into the, the office after the game, and my dad thought, "Oh, here we go." Um, you know, Celtic had come and called and delighted. <laughs> so anyway, he came in. He came in, and he says, uh, "The manager says to me, he says, oh, right, dear, he says, you've done really well today.'" And he says, uh, "As you know, there's been a few scouts watching, and he says, um, and one of them want to sign you.'" And my dad's obviously spirits, you know, thought, "Your beauty, you know, I'm, I'm signing for Celtic." 
and, uh, and he says, ah, he says, George Farm from, uh, sorry, uh, the Queen of the South manager uh, wants to sign you. And my dad was kind of deflated. They went, well, so selling then, right? Okay, anyway, long story short, again, he signed for sell, he signed for Queen of the South. But who, who the Celtic scout was there to watch was my dad's mate in the team was Stevie Chalmers. Yeah. And Stevie obviously went on to play in the Lisbon Lions team. Yeah. And, uh, and my dad always says, a wee sliding doors moment. If it wasn't for a quirk of fate, he could have signed for Celtic and he could have been Ronnie Simpson playing in the <laughs> European Cup final and winning nine in a row and everything else that goes with it. But, uh, but you know, not long after that, um, my dad was playing for our growth. He went on loan to our growth. Yeah. And uh, after signing for Queen of the South, and uh, he got a horrendous injury. He got a, um, a double compound fracture of his leg. Yeah. So uh, and he was told almost there and then that he was he would have to give up. He got back playing again, um, and then in one of the uh, the, the games back, he uh, dived at a guy's feet, and it was um, oh, what was the guy? The lad's name. He he played for uh, Rangers, and he ended up being a journalist. And his son played. Oh, I think, oh no. Uh, uh, Dougie, can't remember. can't remember, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he dived at the, the, the guy's feet and um, he burst three of his ribs and punctured his lung. And then oh. he, got up for, he got up for the rebound for that incident and the next striker came in and smashed him in the head and he got 11 stitches in his, his head. So my mum told him at that time, because at that time they were obviously all part-time and, and yeah. if, you, if you weren't working, you weren't getting any pay at your work. Yeah. And it was my mum and just says, look, you know, enough's enough, David. We've got to, you know, you've got to give up. So, so my dad had had to give up football and, and he was very pragmatic about my career. So when I got the bad injury, he says, look, get yourself back fit. And he says, we can take it from there and see, you know, see, see where you go. So I did. I, I got myself back fit with the help of Andy Stevenson. Um, but I, I must admit, I, I knew the career wasn't going to be at hearts because of, of Henry. And um, so I just had to make a decision where we're going. So... So, whilst it was it was tough, um, I was still the, the other kind of thing that this period that maybe worth just mentioning, Derek, and I don't know where you're, you're going to maybe cover it later on. But yeah. um, I, I another quirk of my football career is I, I I was the first choice goalkeeper from for Scotland from under fifteen all the way through to under eighteen. Yeah. Then I got my injury. Then I got my injury, and the, the the number two was always Brian Gunn. Yeah. And the number and the number three was Gordon Marshall. Mm-hmm. And the number four was a lad that was at Hibs called uh, Robin Reed. Uh, so I was the number one. Ben was the number two. Marsh was the number three. And, and Reedy was the number four. I got my, my injury. And at this time, um, Brian was in the, the run for the uh, Aberdeen's run to the Cup on his Cup final yeah. against Real Madrid. Yeah. So, so Aberdeen wouldn't release him. So Marsh became the number two. And then Marsh became the number one by default. But then Marsh got a bad... Marsh was at Rangers at the time. Gordon was at Rangers at the time. And he got a bad... He got a really bad knee, uh, leg break as well. So that meant that Gordon and myself were out injured. Brian was with Aberdeen. And that allowed Robin to become the number one. And then we qualified for the European Championships. Um, in Finland 
1982, and I was just coming back from fitness at this point. Uh, Marsh was still injured, and uh, Brian Gunn was away with Aberdeen. So Andy Roxburgh, uh, the, the three coaches at the Scotland team at that time were Andy Roxburgh, Craig Brown, and Walter Smith. Wow. And uh, Andy Roxburgh contacted Harps and says, you know, is he in fit? I see he's played a few uh, reserve games, blah, 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 blah. And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, he's fit. Uh, so anyway, Andy phoned me up and asked if I would, uh, even though I wasn't 100% fit, come on the bench for the, the Scotland squad in, in Finland. And, I, and I, again, I'm sure you remember this with the history of, uh, with your journalism side. It's the only team in Scotland's history that's ever won the European Championship, any competition. So we won the European Championships in 1982, but I was the sub, so I didn't play. So, but Gary played, Gary scored in the final, David Bowen played virtually every game, uh, Paul McStay, Neil Cooper, yeah. uh, Billy Davis, Eric Black, you know, uh, so, so that squad, and that allowed us to qualify for the, uh, the Youth World Cup the following year in Mexico. And uh, by that time, Brian was back fit and uh, was, was able to, to be released. So Brian was the number one and I was the number two. And we went to the World Cup in 1983 in Mexico and got to the quarterfinals of the, the World Cup. So, uh, so whilst it was, it was difficult, you know, from a, a first-team perspective at Harps, I was still enjoying quite a lot of my football because of the, the Scotland youth setup as well. So. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that, Ian. Um, representing Scotland, I mean, at any level... Uh, must, must have been a proud moment for you. And to be part of a successful team, you just rhymed off a whole host of players, really talented boys there. It must have been a great, great fun to be involved with. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it really was. It was um, probably a bit of a golden era, if I'm being yeah. honest with you. And it, the other thing that's quite an interesting fact about that, Derek, is that you look at that squad and, you know, the numerous names you could mention, you know, Paul McStay, Jim Dobbin, Jim McAnally, uh, Billy Davis, uh, Kenny Black, Dave McPherson, Eric Black, Neil Cooper, you know, Brian Gunn, Gordon Marshall, myself, Gary Davey, uh, Brian Rice, um, Stevie Clark, Pat Nevin, Brian McClear, you know, all, <laughs> these, all these players, interestingly enough, not only had a, a long football career, but also went into coaching and management, yeah, which is which is quite interesting, and, and I think that that maybe shows the depth of quality in that squad. That it wasn't just about the playing side of it. They had a that's probably why they were better players is because they had a thought about the game, and not only they just wanted to play it, they also wanted to think about it and and have a real deep passion about it. And it's quite interesting how many players one are either still in the game, but two, um, if they're not still in the game, they had long careers in in football. Um, and, and some of them obviously had to cut short their injury uh, through injuries, their career. But most of them went into to the management side as well. So yeah. But I do you still have your do you get do you, do you still have your medal from that European Championship, Ian? I do. I have still got that. The but um, my, my dad, God love him. Um, he was a bit of a, a an anorak when it came to my career, so he kept. All the scrapbooks, all the memorabilia, yeah. and all that. Game. So, so I've got eight scrapbooks of my career <laughs> from under from under twelve at Salvis and Boys Club all the way through to finishing off at Hibs in nineteen. Uh, sorry, two thousand and five. Yeah. So, uh, so I've got all the, the wee bits and pieces from that. I haven't got everything, but I've got uh, I've got the, the key things. Yeah. 
Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And back to the club career then. You joined in Fernland and, and, and Jim Leishman is there as, as, as a manager. What a character he is. Um, how, how did you find him and uh, moving to Dunfermline? Uh, I guess you, you must have been delighted to, to get regular first-team football when you went there. Well, it was. It was an interesting thing, Derek. You know, when you think about it, again, going back to, you know, 80, you know, the mid-80s, there was no such thing as, you know, the internet or laptops, computers or, you know, you know Google or search engines and all that. So, and, and the, the level of coverage of football was, was relatively, you know, it was BBC One and STV and that was it, you know. Yeah. So, so what I knew about Dunfermline, you could probably write on the back of a postage stamp, you know. <laughs> Um, but Leash, in his own indimitable way, you know, was one of these kind of guys that you know would sell coals to Newcastle. You know, he was he, he was he'd only been in the job a year when he signed myself, and uh, at that time it was the the pyramid was uh, Premier League first and second division, so the Dunfermline were in the second division. And my dad said, you know, he says, look, he says Dunfermline got good history. You know, from you know back in the sixties, he remembered them in the sixties. The he says, you know, the only way is up for them really. He says, you want to play first-team football? And he says, sometimes you've got to take a step down to, to go forward. And so I did. And um, we went on and again, the, the, the squad that we had there at that beginning was, uh, it was quite a small squad. And, and if Leash is, is honest, he was quite lucky in so much that there was very few serious injuries in that squad in the first couple of seasons. And because of that, he was able to pick a fairly... Uh, um, steady side and even now you know you ask any Dunfermline fan um, name the side in the 80s you know the mid 80s when Leash took over and they would name it it's almost like the Lisbon Lions side you can name that side no, no bother at all you know um, and, and the same in, in Dunfermline's history so the team picked itself and and I was very much aware I was uh, taking over from a, a legend at Dunfermline Hugh White Hugh White was the goalkeeper that uh, played all through the the 70s through into the 80s and um, fantastic career you know an absolute gentleman unfortunately no longer with us mm -hmm. um, but just one of life's good guys so I was very much aware I was 21 just turned 21 you know filling, filling big gloves big shoes uh, big boots and yeah. uh, I went in there but I, had a wee, I was lucky enough to have a wee bit of success we missed out in promotion in the first year by uh, you know a point and uh, the next season, obviously, we went on in, in to get a bit of success. But Lee Leash was fantastic. He was a fantastic motivator, still is a, a great guy, good friend of mine, still. Um, and, and just one of life's good guys. And probably uh, one of the main reasons why Dunfermline uh, are at the fore of, of, of people's minds in, in Scottish football. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you set a, a cracking record. Uh, was it the first your first season? Was it six matches? A shutout record at six hundred and seventeen minutes um, without conceding a goal. I mean, that's incredible. Is that still a record to this day? Uh, I think I think it was either equaled or just missed out mm. on by Sean Murdoch a couple of seasons back. Yeah, uh, but I know it was. It, it was more or less the same. I'm not. I'm not 100 yeah. sure, but I. I mean, I had a fantastic. I mean, when you talk about shutouts, everybody automatically thinks the goal is making save after save after save after save. But you know, yeah. whilst I, I contributed, uh, the, the team, the, the defensive team, was fantastic. I mean, we had Bobby Robertson right back, David Young centre half, Norrie McCarthy sweeper, and Bobby Forrest, you know, left back. And that and that that team literally chose itself every week, week in week out. 
couple of changes now and again through injuries and suspensions, of course, but you know, largely chose itself. So, so I we uh, we did really well, you know, early on in my career at Dunfermline, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a few shutouts. I think, I think the first, I think I played eight games in the first season I was there. You know, the, the tail end of the season. Yeah, and I think we had six shutouts or something like that, and then the following season, I think we, we had a record number of shutouts in that season as well. So, I but you know, whilst it was great to have a personal record, it was a, a good team achievement as well. Yeah, but how much did you enjoy playing at East End Park? Hi, again, it was um, very different, of course, to, to what it looks like now. You know, yeah. it, was, uh, it, it was the main stand, and then the big uh, open terracing at the County Beath end, the away end, yeah. and then uh, the shed down at the, the home end, the left. You know, the, the what they call the, the home end, the the, uh, the the west stand. Yeah. Uh, now, now the Norrie McCarthy stand. Yeah. Um, East End is um, a very long pitch, but quite a narrow pitch. Mm-hmm. And, and kicking was never my forte, so that, that was always a wee bit of a struggle. But I always enjoyed, you know, just like the, the vast majority of football teams, they always like shooting into their home supporters in the second half. And, uh, you know, so because of the, the sort of gap at the back of the away end, it wasn't quite as intimidating to for, you know, playing at East End. Um, to go to the away end, you know, the County Beath end, because the, the crowd was set quite far back from you because of the, the way the, the stadium was laid out. Different now, of course, it's all, you know, squared up. Yeah. But uh, I, I really I loved it. And, and thankfully, uh, because of the wee, success, wee bit of success I had, you know, the Fremlin fans really took to me very early on and, uh, yeah, loved it. And a fantastic first spell at Dunfermline. Yeah, I was going to mention how much fun was it playing. Like you said, you got promoted the, the, the second season you were there. Um, it must have been a, a fun place to be around, especially with, with, with Leishman as, as, as coach as well. It must have been, uh, must well, have been good fun going to training every day. Well, it was. But bear in mind, we were part-time at that time as well, remember. So we were, uh, so we were only training on a, a Monday and a Thursday night and then playing on the Saturday. Wow. Um, but, but there was real characters in, that, in that, that dressing room as well. I mean... You know, John Watson, Norrie McCarthy, Jim Bowie, yeah. uh, Ian McCall joined us later on, you know, uh, and then you had the sort of sensible ones, you know, the Davy Youngs and the Bobby Robertsons and myself and uh, the Daftas Brushes guys, you know, you know so it was, a, it was a real mixture. And interestingly enough, you know, like a lot of part-time clubs, um, an interesting mixture of professions as well. So you, you had... Um, trades guys, you had plasterers and brickies and, and roofers, but you also had accountants and doctors and you know and so it was, a, it was a quite a broad church so that that dynamic was really good as well I mean one of our players I'll not name him but uh, had to have a shower every time before the training started because he was a plaster yeah and he was covered in plaster and everything so uh, not, not too many professional footballs have to have a shower before they start training you know but uh, <laughs> but Leash, Leash was you know he, he was a great motivator um he uh, was a laugh a minute you know to, you know, you'd kill your granny for the leash, you know, with his motivation yeah. talks and things like that. And he had a great team round about him. He had uh, Gregor Abel was his, his first team coach and assistant manager. And then John Jobson, um, who was his reserve manager, he was a real character. Um, he was Richard Jobson of the Skids' brother, uh, the band, and he, he was a character around Dunfermline. And then you had wee Joe Nelson, who was the kit man, who kept everybody at their toes and then Philip Yates, the physio. So, so the whole, the whole uh, team and backroom team, 
I know it's the biggest cliche in the world and probably every football that comes on and says, you know, we had a fantastic dressing, fantastic team spirit. It genuinely was, you know, it really was. It was, you know, real, real characters in the game. A lot of things that you can't tell publicly, of course, because, you know, you probably wouldn't get away with it nowadays. But, um, you know, just a lot of good fun, good laughs and, uh, you know, fanta- fantastic, fantastic memories. It really was. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Leash would uh, leave the club in, in, in 1990. Um, were you sad to see him go? He just resigned, didn't he? It was. It was, you know, I think it's been well documented. You know, everybody's got their opinion on this. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that, you know, people are not fully aware of. But what, what I would say about it was Leash had a, a fantastic career as, as manager of the football club. Yeah. And, and he had a huge success and, you know, and, and with very limited resources compared with others, you know, um, and, and, you know, fantastic, you know, success. When we went full time in 1987, uh, 87, 88, uh, Ian Monroe came in as uh, his assistant because Gregor Abel had uh, decided not to, to go full time because he was a school teacher. So he, he remained in, in that position uh, with his uh, day job. So Ian came in. And I, and I think whatever the, the politics and whatever else was happening behind the scenes, um, Leash, Leash is a proud guy. You know, you know, he has um, the, the offer of the position, I think, was director of football or general manager or whatever the position was. The problem at the time, Derek, was that was a very new title. Yeah. That, that was a new position. That wasn't really something that was particularly thought of. So to, to be fair to Dunfermline, it was probably a little bit forward thinking for them. And Ian Monroe um, was a fantastic football guy, very technically very good on the, the training ground. But, you know, Leash was the motivator. You know, he was the key motivator, the man manager, and, and uh, Ian Monroe was the, um, the tactician and, and everything about it. So I think, I think there was a real there was a real change in the football club. Ian had brought in a, a lot of new players when he came in uh, as part of that team. So, so there was a, a little bit of a breaking up of a, the old guard and the new guard coming in. And uh, I, I think when Leash decided not to take the offer of the, the position that he had been offered at the football club, I think the writing was on the wall for a lot of us. You know, Ian would obviously want to put his own stamp on the club, which he did. Um, and funnily enough, um, it only lasted a, you know, a couple of years and uh, unfortunately Ian left the club. But what I would say about that was I was at Hibs uh, a number of years later uh, down, and we were playing Air United down at uh, Air. Yeah. And uh, Ian Monroe, I hadn't seen Ian for probably the best part of 15, 20 years since I left the club and obviously he left Unfermline. And he came in and, and he says, look, and he says, I just wanted to, you know, it's the first time I've, I've been able to see you. He says, I just wanted to say hello, uh, see how you're getting on. And he actually says that um, he had one of his regrets in football was he broke up the team too quickly yeah. uh, because he wanted to put his own stamp on it. Yeah. And, uh, and he says that was one of the biggest regrets. And he says, and it probably was, he probably took too many um, changes too early. And that, you know, obviously didn't uh, provide the, the, the results that were needed. But, and, and I think Leash, again, you would probably have to ask Leash, but does he have regrets about the whole situation? Of course he does. You know, because he's back at Dunfermline, uh, 
and he's in a different position now, but you know, he probably has done the job that he was probably asked to do back then since yeah. then. You know, you know, so he was doing the sort of director of football, general manager's role within the football club. And something, let's be honest about it, he was putting this earth to do because you know he's a motivator, he's a man manager, he's a um is a salesperson. Let's be honest about it. You know, he's one of these guys is a larger than life character. And Dunferman have hugely benefited from Leash's input over the years and, and still remain so as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to touch on some players that were, that were uh, at Dunferman when you were there, Ian. Um, David Moyes, of course, would, would have a, a little spell there. Um, and the, the club spent uh, half a million pounds, wasn't it, on bringing uh, Isfan Cosma in as well? What, what were these guys like? Well, uh, as far as Moyes is concerned, so my... my, my Moyes and I, um, again, a little bit of a quirky one as well. So back in 1979, I think it was, um, I think it was the English Schools FA Centenary or the Scottish, I think it was the English Schools Centenary FA. Mm -hmm. um, and they decided that it would play Scotland-England matches um, at home and away, um, but under 18 level at schoolboys, which is very unusual. Now, I don't think it ever happens because, of course, by the time under-18 comes, all the good players have been signed up by professional teams. So um, the way Moise, and Moise, Moise is a year older than me, so Moise is now probably just either coming up to 50 or turned 50. I'm, I'm just turned 57. So um, Moise ended up being uh, playing in this, this game these, these couple of games that we played, so that was the first time I'd ever played with, with Moisey, was at Scotland under 18 schoolboy level, which is almost a one-off. So that was my first interaction with, with Moisey. And I always knew then, just that, that uh, you know, uh, experience with David, he was a real football thinker. Yeah. And again, not, not a surprise in any shape or form that he was going to go into management. So, and then later on, um, he signed for Dunfermline in 1990. But at that time, Andy Rhodes had signed for Dunfermline and uh, Rhodes was playing for Dunfermline and I ended up uh, being on the bench or, or number two. So I didn't really play too many games with Moisey at Dunfermline. Mm -hmm. um, and then I left, I, I then went to, to Falkirk in 91. So our paths only crossed over for a season at Dunfermline. Yeah. Um, but, but all the while, you, you knew, you knew Davey was, was going to go into management. He, he was always analysing the game deep thinking about the game and, and a good lad, you know, very vocal and a good lad. Um, and Isvan, a funny story about Isvan. So uh, Blair Morgan was a, a director at Dunfermline Football Club and I don't know what the connection was, but he had a connection through to Bordeaux in, in France. Yeah. So um, First thing, the first thing we, we did was we ended up going to Bordeaux's training facilities for a week's pre-season training. And they had this big purpose-built chateau with, I mean, just state-of-the-art. It was just light years ahead of what, what Dunfermline had. So that was the first thing we did. So when we got back from there, um, our commercial manager, uh, whose name shall remain nameless because of the story, uh, came to see the dressing room one time and, and she said, she says, oh, she says, um, fantastic news guys with making two big signings from Bordeaux. And we were like, oh, right, well, so who's that? 
says, or a Hungarian internationalist called Isvan Kozma, and it must be a, a, a French player called Giorgio Boily, right? And we're going, Giorgio Boily, doesn't mean anything to us. So anyway, a couple of days later, Isvan uh, rocks up with a wee Irish guy called Giorgio Boyle. <laughs> and she had, missed, she had read this Giorgio Boyle as Giorgio Boyle because she didn't know what she thought. There's no chance a wee guy from Belfast is going to be playing for Bordeaux in France. So she, she wrongly assumed it. So forevermore she got hammered for that, of course. But Isvan came, yeah, Isvan came and from day one he was, he, he was you know, let's be honest about it, a class above us, yeah. you know, at Dunfermline. He was a fantastic footballer, lovely guy, um, quite um, different in the way he approached things. You know, back in the days, uh, you know, Dunfermline, it was kind of sleeves rolled up, you know, let's get into them, that type of thing. He brought a lot of silky football to, to football, uh, to, to Dunfermline. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm saying he was precious sounds like it's a negative, but he looked after himself and if, if the conditions weren't right, he would say that it wasn't right and not and all that kind of things. But, but yeah. a fantastic player, a, a real talented boy, both both feet um, and, and one of life's gentlemen as well. So uh, a fantastic football. And obviously left Dunfermline to, to go to, to Liverpool yeah. and then ended up back in Hungary and ended up having a fantastic career back in Hungary as well. Yeah, he was a decent player. Um, before we move on to uh, the Falkirk uh, spell, Ian, um, I was doing a bit of research uh, for this interview, and uh, the time when you, you recorded, was it an EastEnders song or something for Dunfermline Centenary? What, what, what was that all about? Uh, oh, man. So, um, <laughs> David, just before, just before we tell you, um, uh, we talk about that, Derek, I'll tell you a quick story about this van that I'll show you how good he was compared with us. So anyway, Isvan always used to wear the number eight jersey when he yeah. played, obviously. And this day, and he, he stood out head and shoulders, and it was the it was the um, the old cliche in Dunfermline in our dressing room was um, they actually had a, a pre-recorded man of the match message, and it was man of the match. Isvan caused my number eight. That was it, right? Yeah. So anyway, and at that time the sponsors got to pick the man of the match. So this game. Um, the sponsors were asked with five minutes to go, um, who's your man of the match? And at this time, obviously, they've had a few beers and a, a probably a couple of whiskeys as well. And the kind of discussion went as such, says, oh, he says, well, we don't know. To be fair, we've not really been watching much of the game. We've been enjoying the hospitality too much. But uh, I tell you what, that, that, that number eight, this fan Cosmo, is a fantastic play. We'll give, it, we'll give him man of the match. So anyway, and then the... Uh, the commercial manager whispered into the guy's ear, uh, Isvan's no playing the day. That's Trevor Smith that's number eight. <laughs> so so even, even when Isvan wasn't playing, he still got man in the match. <laughs> so anyway. Um, <laughs> aye, EastEnders. EastEnders song. So um, the background to that story, Derek, was simple. Was um, Dunfermline Centenary was 1985. And a year before that, um, EastEnders, the television programme, had just started on BBC. And it, 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 it was really to the forefront of everybody's minds. Everybody was talking about it. The most popular television program at the time. And Blair Morgan was uh, one of our directors. And he was um, a music manager for a few bands and almost like a, one of the first agents, I suppose, you would talk about that. So somebody approached him, uh, some fans approached him to say, well, 
because it's Dunfermline saying Tinnery, why don't why don't we try and get um, some words of Dunfermline Football Club and put them to the East Enders theme tune? So uh, so Blair did that and uh, reached out to a couple of local musicians within the, the football uh, Dunfermline area, and um, lo and behold, the Dunfermline Football Club East Enders song became. Available and we went and uh, recorded it up in a, uh, a recording studio up in, uh, in Edinburgh. The next thing is Leash. Oh, every, everything about Leash was about uh, putting Dunfermline on on the map and, and yeah. putting them in front of you know uh, publicity and things like that. He then tells us, "Bear in mind, we're all part time at the time." He says, uh, "Lads, this is great news." He says, "We're going down to Pebble Mill at one." Um, which was a programme at the time. It was like the one show but at, at lunchtime. So it was a magazine programme, basically. So he says, we're going down and we're going to sing it. And just to let you know, he says, it's the first time ever anybody has sung live on Pebble Mill. So you can just imagine it as mayhem. We're like, uh, really? So uh, so anyway, down we goes. And I don't know, do you, do you remember a, a television presenter called Paul Coyle? The Scots lad? Paul Coyle was um, he, he was a bit of a celebrity at the time he, he was the, the sort of uh, dual presenter of the uh, Pebble Mill so Magnus Magnuson was the, the main presenter the guy that used to do Mastermind yep, yep. so Magnus Magnuson was the presenter so he's interviewing um, one of the main characters the actresses that played uh, Lou Beale um, so she's in the studio, and it's all live, by the way, it's all live television. So um, what's going to happen is Magnus Magnuson's interviewing Lou Beale. Then he's going to turn to the camera and say, right, now we're going to go to um, uh, a treat for everybody. Live on Pimmel Mill, we're going to have the Fairman Football Club who are celebrating the centenary, and they're going to sing uh, their club song to the theme tune of EastEnders. And Paul Coyer is in front of us saying, right, I'll count in, guys. It'll be five, four, and then it's going to be silent, three, two, one. And then we're singing live. So for a laugh, one of our players decided to kid on the farted just on number two. So he went three, and then there's this loud, <laughs> right? And, he, and we're looking at him. You can't see Paul Coyer on the television, but Paul Coyer's like that because he thinks that's gone out live on national television. Then we go on and sing the song. And then afterwards, we're in the green room, and he says, lads, he says, just to let you know, the director told me that that fart sound missed out by one second going out live on television. So we just got away with it no more. So that was the, So um, my wee claim to fame is that um, not only uh, have I had a, a, a record I've also sang live on television and national <laughs> television, and also uh, I'm on the front cover of Dunfermline's cookbook. So I cover all, I cover all kinds of bases on the skating. So magnificent stuff. Um, so you moved to, to Falkirk then in '91, uh, and of course Jim Jeffries was was manager there. Was that is, is that maybe the, the main reason why you decided to to, to change clubs? Well, it was quite simple, if I'm being honest with you, Derek. You know, I, Andy Rhodes was, was playing at Dunfermline and yeah. done really well. Um, 
just a, just a wee story in the back of that because obviously you want a wee bit sort of background story. So so the last the last season that I was at Dunfermline in nineteen ninety, um, Rosie had signed that season. So we both we both decided we would have um, turn about pre-season games because sometimes the manager will say you want a half each, and we said, well, we'd rather play full games this just to get into it. So anyway, we um, we played four games each in the pre-season friendlies, and I uh, I had four shutouts in those games, and Rosie let a few goals in, and then the. Um, the start of the season was at that time, Derek, the first team played the game, and then the reverse fixture was the reserves. So yeah. we were playing we were playing Rangers at Ibrox in the first team, and the reserves were playing Rangers at East End in the reverse fixture. So Phil Bonneman, the uh, the assistant manager, came in and pinned up the two team sheets for on the Friday before uh, we went and uh, before for the games. And Rhodesy was in the first team and I was in the reserves. And at that time, there was no such thing as sub goalies or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, and Rhodesy turned around to me. I was good friends with Rhodesy, you know, just to let you know, we're goalkeepers. And I'm sure, you know, all the goalies that I've spoken to, there's a camaraderie about goalkeeping. You yeah. know, the fact, that, the fact that only one of you can play, that, that's what it's all about. So you shouldn't fall out with the other goalkeeper. It's not his fault that he, he wants to play just as much as you want to play. If you've got any gripe, it's with the manager because he picks the side, you know. Yeah. So anyway, me and Rosie were, were, were good mates and, and sat next to each other, you know, in the dressing room, you know, for, for the training and things like that. So he says to me, he says, Wesley, he says, this must be a mistake. He says, you know, you've had four shutouts, you've done all right. He says, you know, I can't believe I'm playing. And I says, look, I says, I think it's just Ian wants to, you know, put his own slant on things. I says, it is what it is, you know. So Leash had left by this time. So Ian Monroe is the manager. So, um, so I had four shutouts. Then, sorry, I'm, I'm telling you, I had four shutouts, and then we played the League Cup game. Yeah. And we beat, I can't remember who it was, we won 5 nothing. so I had another shout. So that was five shutouts in a row. And then for the first game of the season, Ian decided that uh, Andy was going to play, and, and I wasn't. So, so I had, had five shutouts in the, in the, in the, uh, on the bounce. So, go to the last game of the season, um, Rhodesy had been sent off the previous week against Hibs at Easter Road. So I had to play the last game of the season. And it was the time where uh, uh, I think Dundee United were want to qualify for Europe and Duncan Ferguson was getting mentioned about going to either down to Rangers or, to Rangers or, or whatever. Anyway, so I went and played and I had one of these daft games where I could have played, played all day and never lost a goal. You know, I was making save after save. Big Dunk was getting frustrated with me at times. He says, I'm trying to get a move. What are you doing? You know, all these type of things. Anyway, long story short is, so I came in the dressing room after the game and uh, Paul Smith, who was a good mate of mine, he was a sentiment fuel player for us. He turns around and shouts the, the top of his voice in the dressing room and it was for Ian's benefit, you know, for winding him up. He says, Westy, he says, fantastic. He says, you must be the only goalie in the history of football to have a shutout in every game that you play in a whole season. He says, well done. I says, because I'd played six first-team games and had six shutouts, you know, so we drew nil-nil. So anyway, um, but so going back, so the, the next pre-season, um, Big Gordon Marshall was a good mate of mine, and it was before mobile phones never ended. Yeah. Marsh phoned, Marsh phoned me up on the Wednesday, 
and this and the, the season started on the Saturday. And Marsh says to me, he says, Wasty, he says, I think you'll be getting a phone call from, from Jim Jeffries, who was Mark Gordon was at Falkirk at the time. Yeah. And uh, he says, Look, he says, it looks like I'm getting a move to Celtic. And he says, uh, and we've only got a couple of young uh, young goalkeepers, and he says, and Jeff is is looking to get a senior guy in that he knows and, and he knows about. He says he thinks he's going to phone you. Anyway, long story short was I get the phone call on the, the Wednesday night um, to go and speak to Jim Jeffries on the Thursday. So we met him, we agreed terms. I trained on the Friday and then played on the Saturday. And uh, we, I think we, we drew with Motherwell one each and I saved a penalty. But the, the, the quirk of that, Derek, is that, um, pardon me, Big Marsh was a, a real legend at, the, at Falkirk. Yeah. Uh, he did really well. And again, big gloves, big shoes for me to fill. And, and the other side of it, and I don't know how much you know about you know the Scottish football in that area, but Dunfermline and Falkirk are big rivals. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost like the Rangers Celtic or, or you know yeah. Hearts and Hibs, you know. So I expected a tough time, if I'm being honest with you, you know, from the fans, you know, because I've taken over from the legend that is Big Marsh. But anyway, I ended up doing really well the first season. Uh, or, or well the first season and they ended up getting a few player of the year awards and, and the fans took to me really well which, 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 which was fantastic and uh, but I had quite a lot of wee niggling injuries as well um, anyway long story short was uh, that was the first season and we did okay um, however the following season and I didn't think I played any differently but things just didn't quite work out and uh, Tony Parks came in from uh, Spurs and uh, he came in because I was injured and I couldn't get back in again from there. And, and again, a couple of seasons later, well, uh, half a season later, uh, Bert Payton uh, and Dick Campbell asked me if I'd go back to Dunfermline and I went back to Dunfermline from there. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, your time at Falkirk, like you say, that first season, uh, filling uh, Gordon Marshall's uh, shoes, like you say, and, and playing in front of the fans and having that reception, did, um, uh, that must, it must have sort of made you feel good, Ian? Was there a sense of trepidation walking out for the first time at Brockville and what have you thinking, oh, what sort of reaction am I going to get here? Oh, absolutely, and definitely. And, and at that time, it's funny now, Derek, that a lot, a lot of players now have done more of the sort of transitioning from, you know, Dunfermline, Falkirk, and, you know, various different things. Whereas at that time, there hadn't been that many. In fact, yeah. I think I was one of the first, if I'm being honest with you. But um, that... Aye, there was trepidation, there's no doubt at all about that. And, and as, a, as a player, all you want to do is, is do your best and, and, you know, what will be will be, you know. But sometimes, no matter how good you are, people will not take to you for whatever reason. Um, but it, I don't know whether it was that, was it that season? Or was the following season? I can't remember, but... You, you, I don't know. You, uh, did you ever go to Brockville? Have you ever seen been at Brockville? I, I wasn't. I wasn't fortunate enough to go to the old right. Brockville. I, I, I well, loved you, it. Oh well, <laughs> you can imagine it wasn't. It wasn't the most salubrious of, of places. Let's put it that way. It was a bit tired, should we yeah. say? Anyway, but but um, at that time um, there was just a, a kind of shallow terrace all the way around. There was a big main stand, and yeah. then there was a shallow terrace all the way around. And the right-hand side, as you, as you came out the town end, uh, that was the, the home supporters' end. Anyway, so um, I, I was I was going bald by the time I was 20, 21. 
you know, so I was losing my hair quite rapidly. So by the time I got to Falkirk, um, I decided that, um, and it was before it became trendy, I would take clippers to my hair. Yeah. Right? So, um, so I went out, first time the guy, the, the fans had seen me with this, this short hair. And uh, so I went to get a ball from behind the goals to take it by a kick. And there was a wee laddie holding the ball. And I thought, right, okay, what's he going to do with this? I said, right, son. And he, handed, he was just to hand it to me rather than throw it to me. So I went up and I took the ball off his hands. And the next thing, he rubbed the top of my head, right? And he shouted up to the, to, to the, the fans. He says, you're right, Dad. He says, it feels like a tennis ball, right? And the whole of, the whole of the tennis and is absolutely wetting themselves laughing with me with this tennis ball. So anyway, so but so I it was um, I, it was a, I, I thought I had a strange connection with the, uh, the Falkirk fans. That yeah. a lot of them got on great with me. Others obviously saw me as the ex rival, and you know, no matter what I could do, I wouldn't do right for them. But yeah. I enjoyed my time again. Fantastic! I would say again, Derek, and again, I know it's the biggest cliche in football. Fantastic dressing room. Jim Jeffries and Billy Brown had a fantastic, and Peter Houston, the, the the coaching staff, had a fantastic sort of team spirit amongst them. I mean, that was a big dressing room. When you think about the players that were in that dressing room, there was uh, Simon Stainrod, yes. uh, Yogi Hughes, Joe McLaughlin, Brian Rice, Ian McCall, um, Kevin McAllister. Paul Smith, Eddie May, you know, um, Davy Weir, Davy Weir came, you know, he was there at the time, um, you know, big big characters, big dressing room, and, and Simon Stay, uh, Kevin Drinkle came as well, Sammy McGiven, you know, uh, Richard Cadet, you know, a lot of good players, really good players, and, and probably kick, uh, punching above our weight for you know for Falkirk Football Club. Yeah. Uh, I was going to touch on, on the players before that, Ian. Did you ever come up against uh, Dunfermline when you were at Falkirk? Do you ever, I know you in season 93-94, you beat them by, by a point to, to get promotion. But in terms yep. of playing against your old club, uh, uh, did you ever face them? I know we did. I, we, um, I, I'll tell you how bad this, this recollection is. There, and I'm, I'm getting embarrassed talking about it. <laughs> I think it's the other way about. It was either the first time I played Dunfermline was at Falkirk, but I think it was the other way about. I think it was when I went back to Falkirk after um, going back to Dunfermline the second time. Yeah. The first time I was back playing, we were winning 1-0 and, uh, and the ball got cut back from the byline and I dived out and I got kicked in the face. Yeah. And again, probably wouldn't have played on nowadays, but yeah. usual cold sponge, uh, knocked unconscious for a couple of minutes and, and then came to and carried on playing. But the ball had broken free and ended up in the back of the net. Right? But what I didn't realise was the referee had chopped off that goal. And um, so I was getting all excited, you know, uh, coming at the end of the game about keeping it tight, you know. Yeah. But what I didn't know was um, we had already we'd scored another goal so I thought at that time it was only 1-0, but in fact it was 2-0, and I thought it was 2-1. Sorry, I thought it was one each. Yeah. So I was all confused about the game. So um, that was that was one of the recollections of going back to playing Dunfermline yeah. uh, in Falkirk. So but a bit confusing all around. 
Yeah, absolutely. The players you mentioned there, I mean, cracking players at Falkirk at that time. Yogi Hughes, what a character he is. Um, again, another lively dressing room when he's around. I can tell you so many stories about Yogi, which would frighten you. But I will tell you one because it is, it's a funny story. But again, a crazy story when you when you think about it. I'm not going to name the name of the, the player because it's unfair. Yeah. But I'll name the, the, the rest of the story. So I was saying to you about um, Falkirk and Rockville not, not being particularly salubrious and a, a bit tired and, and everything else with it. So the home dressing room at, at Falkirk, there was a, a small communal bath that sat maybe about eight players. And then there was about three showers. Um, so at one point, um, there was obviously um, works getting done within the, the main stand. And unknown to us, there was myself, uh, Eddie May, Yogi, we're all sitting after the, the training in this communal dress, in this communal bath, sitting, having chewed the fat. And the next minute, this young lad came running into the, into the, the shower room, jumped up and pulled an open cable that was hanging from the, the roof and threw it into the bath. Well, exactly. You know, we're like that. What the hell are you doing? Well, Yogi has gone mental, right? He's got out the bath and he's sprinting through completely bollock naked trying to catch the offending player who's obviously got his kit on and he's sprinting away. So now you've got a picture of the scene. They're now on, out on the pitch. The players running around. It's like somebody a, a Benny Hill sketch. Yogi's bollock, bollock naked and telling them what he's going to do to him if he catches them because of how stupid he could be. So anyway, the, the long story short on that was the lad had been up the stairs um, in the, the gym up the stairs yeah. and he had spoken to the, uh, the what do you call it, the, the contractors that were doing the, the electrical work saying, are these, are these uh, cables live? And he says, no, 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 no. He says, we're, do, we're just doing some work in it. He says, oh, I'm going to wind up the players down the stairs. I'm going to pull that. I mean, but, but by the time he comes down, I mean, anything could have happened. They could have switched the power back on or anything. But, yeah. so, but that was Yogi. And then, of course, the other famous one that we all know about, one of the, uh, one of the directors of um, Falkirk was fancied himself as, as a speed merchant who used to play in the wing in rugby. So um, he was going to race against... Scott Sloan, who was one of our quickest players. Yeah. So it all been organised and that was fine. But unknown to the two of them, when this race was going to take place out on the pitch, Yogi decided that he was going to join them, but he was going to do it absolutely bollock naked. So the, the, the race started and then suddenly the streaker appeared and Yogi appeared in the background and then he started to run. So, but uh, aye, real character, lovely, lovely fella, one of life's good guys and, and a mate of mine. And uh, aye, Top draw, good, good guy. Yeah, absolutely. Another one was Simon Steenrod. We had Dusan Virto on last week and he was talking about him being the manager of Dundee, walking on the park with like a cowboy hat and all that. Again, was he another one that was just a, an, a, big char a character? Big, big character. I mean, fantastic player, of course. A couple of stories about Simon. Um, we were playing in uh, um, St. Johnson up at uh, McDermott. Yeah. And they scored against us. So uh, Simon is taking the kickoff at, uh, at the halfway line. And uh, Simon 
says to to wee Sammy, Sammy McGibbon, just touch the ball to me, touch the ball to me. And Sammy's like, what, what are you talking about? He says, just touch the ball to me. Anyway, he touches the ball to him, and then Simon pings it from the halfway line over Lindsay Hamilton's head into the, the goals and scores from the halfway line. And of course, at that time, it wasn't it wasn't getting uh, televised, but but St. Johnson videoed their games, but because they didn't want to embarrass anybody, they wouldn't uh, release bulk up the, the, the live coverage. So the, the, the week after, I think STV came to, to Falkirk and says, can we try and uh, recreate that famous goal? And Simon took about a million attempts to try and do it. He couldn't do it, but eventually he did it. But aye, so, so that was Simon. But the other story about and it links in with Yogi. Simon and Yogi, two larger-than-life characters. Yeah. Um, both of them fancied themselves as quite hardy guys as well. So Yogi used to say to Simon, I could take you any day of the week. In fact, I could take you with one arm uh, tied behind my back. And Simon says, I'll, I'll, take you, I'll, I'll take you up on that anymore. So anyway, bear in mind, this is a full-time professional football club you're talking about, and we're playing a first-team game on the Saturday. So Friday after the training, unknown to, to Jim Jeffries and Billy Brown, they, we decide to have a wee boxing competition. <laughs> so so the, the, the home dressing room, the uh, treatment table gets taken out of the home dressing room. A wee mini boxing ring gets uh, put, so uh, so there's the boxing square's been put out in the middle of the dressing room. And Yogi and Simon get the boxing gloves on. And the only rule of the gate, the boxing matches, we're not allowed to punch each other's heads. So anyway, they, they start punching and um, they are going at it. I mean, proper hammer and tongs. I mean, they are really going for it. Both of them are brave as lions and proud as punch. They're never going to let on that they're, they're yeah. literally bright red with the punches that have been thrown. Billy Brown, hears all the commotion comes in. The assistant manager, Billy Brown, comes in and goes, stand, jaw just about hits the ground and goes, what the hell are you doing? What happens if you, you get injured or anything like that? And big game. But, but that kind of sums up the two of them. Daft as brushes, but uh, good characters, big, big characters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you moved to Dundee for a wee spell, didn't you? Is that right? Did you play there? No, what what, what happened was um, I knew that Dunfermline were, were interested in, in signing me. Um, but at that time, the, the timing wasn't quite right. But um, by this time, Tony Parks was was um, in playing for Falkirk, yeah. and I was I wasn't playing. However, uh, Jim Jeffries had put together a, a swap deal that included myself and Neil Duffy going to Dundee, and I think Jamie McQuilkin and, and yeah. Dusan Verto going to Falkirk. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short was I didn't particularly fancy him because I knew that. I wanted to go back to Dunfermline, and it was just a matter of time. So anyway, I spoke, uh, Jim Duffy was the manager at, uh, at Dundee, and he says, look, Wesley, he says, come up for a, uh, a few months. He says, it'll be more of a coaching role, because I'd been starting to do my coaching badges at that point, yeah. and I was starting to do this sort of goalkeeping coaching side of things. And I says, I says, look, I says, okay, I says, but I don't want to commit myself to a long-term contract. Else. He says, well, come up and sign for six months. And he says, see, see how you fancy it. And he says, if it works out, great. And if not, he says, I'll not stand in your way. And anyway, true to his word, um, that's what I did. I went up and Michelle Pajot and uh, Paul Mathers was with the two goalkeepers up the time. Yeah. I, I coached them for a wee while up there, helped out with, with, with 
uh, taking the um, the reserves as well on the coaching side of it with the with the goalkeeping side of it. So I, I really enjoyed my, my time up there, but it was only a, a very short time. And then Bert Payton and uh, Dick Campbell phoned me up and asked if I'd be interested to come back to them firm and obviously jumped to the chance. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you mentioned there Bert and, and Dick were in charge. Uh, we had Bert on again a, a few months ago as, as well. Cracking guy. Uh, different uh, uh, than uh, Jim Leishman that you were uh, played under before. Um, Ian, how did you find Bert and, and Dick? As you say, very different characters. Um, I, I thought it was a perfect combination, if I'm being honest with you. You know, Bert, um, he, a lot of people, and, and Bert, you obviously spoke to him, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, there, lovely guy, gentleman, completely and utterly modest guy. Doesn't talk, doesn't talk about it. But he's one of the best players in Dunfermline's history. Yeah. And uh, player wise, yeah. and um, you know, was through the Halcyon times, fantastic, you know, career as a player. Um, and then, you know, had a good coaching career as well, not not as a, a manager, but as a coach. He, you know, he was assistant to um, Totten, Alec Totten, Alec, and uh, Alec a few Totten, others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, but I think he was out of the game for a wee spell and was down in Rosyth, I think, for a wee bit. Yeah. Uh, him and Dick. And, uh, and, of course, everybody knows Dick's credentials, you know, one of the... the um, most decorated coaches in, in Scottish football's history. Um, and, and, you know, so his, his and a larger-than-life character. So when, when, he, when he came, it was almost like, not the good cop, bad cop, I don't mean it, but, but the quiet guy and the loud guy. Yeah. You know, Bert being the, the deep thinker about the game and then Dick being, you know, the sort of larger-than-life character. So they sold me the club, didn't need to sell me the club. You know, I would jump at the chance to, you know, to sign we signed and, and we had a you know a really good time. Unfortunately, my, my second spell at Dunfermline, I had a lot of injuries. Um, yeah. You know, all the while my knee was was you know starting to come back to um, to roost, but still had a fantastic time. You know, within my, my second period at Dunfermline, and they always say it's a bit of a gamble going back the way. Yeah. However, I'll be honest with you. I had as equally a good a time when I went back to Dunfermline as I did, you know, the first time round, which was saying something to be fair, because I, I really enjoyed my time the first time. Yeah, I was going to say that because um, you never get any stick when you went to Falkirk. Did you get any stick when you went back to Dunfermline? No, and, and that's the good thing is that um, no, Dunfermline fans have always been, you know, very very supportive to me. So I didn't get any of that stick, which was good. I, I probably expected a wee bit, if I'm being honest with you. But you know, when, when I went back. When I went back to play East End when I was at Falkirk, I got a great reception when I went back. When I went back to Dunfermline to, to play for them again, fantastic reception. And when I went back from when I left Dunfermline in 2000 and went to Hibs as a, as a player coach, yeah. whenever I went back to, to Dunfermline with Hibs, got fantastic reception as well. So I was very lucky. Well, you know, the Dunfermline fans have kind of taken me to their heart and I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, couple of things that are probably worth mentioning, you know, within this. Um, I, I played, you know, four decades of, of professional football, uh, which is unheard of, I suppose. Uh, the vast majority of it, Dunfermline, you know, that's where my success came. That's where my kind of records are probably, the, well, I, I know I'm the most decorated 
uh, Dunfermline player in their history. You know, five promotions, three titles, etc., yeah. etc. Et um, I think a record number of appearances as a as a goalkeeper. You know, uh, you know various different things. Um, they they did a couple of like a lot of football clubs do like polls of past players. Yeah, and I was lucky. I was lucky enough to to become you know the the, the goalkeeper in that you know favorite eleven kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And on the outside of Dunfermline's football ground, um, there's a there's a, a wall where there's eleven those eleven players. Yeah, and there's photos, big photos, big kind of four feet yeah. by three feet photos of all the players, and I'm the goalkeeper. And then the twelfth one is just a picture frame, and you can stand there as a fan and get your photo taken. You know, so it looks like you're part of that squad. So that I suppose that tells you how much I'm kind of thought of at Dunfermline. And then inside Dunfermline, in the main stand, there's a there's a big uh, um, uh, sports bar in, in, the, in the main stand called Legends. Yeah. And in that, there's a hand painted mural, and um, I think there's about nine players within that hand-painted mural and I'm, and I'm one of them. So it kind of shows the affinity that, you know, the Dunfermline Football Club and the fans have with myself and, and I'll be forever grateful for that. So, uh, you, know, it's, you know, I always get a good reception when I go there. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I mean, when you were there, that, that second spell, uh, Ian, uh, up winning promotion, of course, 95 96. And then that, that, that season in the Premier League, uh, finishing fifth, the Dizzy Heights are, are fifth. I mean, that's probably the, the, the best at, uh, position that Dunfermline that could ever dream of achieving at a club that size, isn't it? Have that high up in the, in the division. Yeah, I mean, it was a, I mean the, obviously the 95 96 season was a, a very emotional time for Dunfermline Football Club. Um, we lost Nori McCarthy within that season. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of turmoil in the club and uh, I ended up playing, you know, the last few games of that season, maybe the last eight games of the season. And we went up to Dundee United, the, you know, the, the second last game of the season. And if Dundee United beat us, uh, they won the championship and they got promoted. Uh, however, you know, we beat them 1-0 and I was lucky enough to have a few saves. And uh, that's always remembered as one of my better games for them because of, because of the context. The next again week, uh, we beat Airdrie East End and then we won the championship. Um, so, you know, very emotional time and that'll be forever uh, remembered for uh, as the Norrie McCarthy season. Yeah. And then, as you say, after that, you know, we ended up having a, a really good time and, and, you know, had a, a good success with Dunfermline Football Club that, that following season. Um, and I personally, I did okay as well during that period as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there, Norrie McCarthy. I mean, uh, on the players and what have you, how, how big an impact does that have on, on you guys and does it sort of bring you closer together, would you say? Well, it definitely did, Derek. It was, um, you know, Norrie McCarthy, you know, the, 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 one of the stands at Dunfermline is called the Norrie McCarthy stand. That's, that's how high in people's uh, minds he is at Dunfermline Football Club. But um, Norrie was just a, you know, a fantastic guy, you know, a good, you know, Kill your granny, you yeah. know, you know, for you know, type of guy. He was one of these type of players that would run through a brick wall. Um, at times, he thought he was a better player than he was, by the way. But that's another <laughs> story. But you know, I, he was a converted midfield player that ended up being a you know a defender. But at times, he um, tried to be you know a silky a silky footballer. Sometimes that, that didn't always work out. But no, joking apart, he was a great player. 
trusted him intrinsically and, and how he played was a goalie's dream because you knew what you were going to get from him. But when he passed away, it left a massive hole, not only on the playing side, but obviously from a personal perspective from the players. And it was a, a huge shock. And, and, and it's all testament to, you know, Dick and Bert for driving the, the football club through a hugely challenging period. Um, Craig Robertson, who became the club captain at the time, and I personally don't think he gets the credit he deserves for not only how he conducted himself as a man, but also how he, he managed, he captained the club in those really challenging times going forward and uh, never get never gets the credit he deserves um, as a player. Really fantastic footballer. And to be fair, all the rest of the boys for getting on with the job and, and winning it for Norrie, you know, because it could have quite easily had the opposite effect, you know, a, a tragedy like that happening and uh, having a, a hugely negative impact to the football club. Because remember that was... That was in January that happened. So that was that was literally halfway through a season yeah. um, of a very important season for the football club, you know, to try and get back up into the Premier League. So, I know, um, tragic, you know, be forever remembered. Um, aye, um, 25 years in January it will be. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy how time goes. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it certainly is. I was going to ask you, in terms of a goalkeeper, you hear... Uh, a host of goalkeepers saying the superstitions and what have you. Were you one of those that, that had to maybe do something uh, each each Far game? too. Have you got four hours? <laughs> <laughs> I I was murder when it came to. I always said it wasn't superstitions, but let's be honest, about it, it was. Um, I just said I had a routine. Yeah. If I if I fell out of that routine for any reason, I was devastated. You know, I was it was. It was one of these stupid things from wearing white socks to um, putting my gear on exactly the same uh, routine every time, going out seconds, yeah. uh, always finishing the warm-up with a, a save, never a, a goal, um, <laughs> touching, touching the bar just as we were about to uh, kick off. Um, to taking up when I when I saved the ball in the warm up, you know the last one, I used to then try and uh, kick it into the dugout, you know, ping it over from the, the goal into the dugout. Where where do you want to go? And, and everything else in between. By the way, none of them were too successful. At least. <laughs> as, anybody, as anybody knew that watched me playing, but at least at least I tried. At least I tried. Magnificent, good stuff. And and when you're at Dunfermline as well, I mean, Bert would, would, would move on and uh, Jimmy Calder would come in. Um, he's not doing so well just now, uh, unfortunately, yeah. God bless him. But um, what, what was yeah. he like when you came into the, the football club? Ian? Well, of course, at that time, um, again, because there was no internet at that time and, and you know, uh, knowledge of the game wasn't as much as we would have, um, we didn't know anything about him. I'll be honest about it. You know, we knew nothing about him. He came in, and I'll be honest with you, and this is completely no disrespect to to Bert or uh, or Dick or Jimmy Nicholl, you know, prior, prior to that, he brought in a completely new way of training and way of working and, and analysis of games. Uh, very much the Dutch way, uh, yeah. as you can imagine. He was very measured. This sounds really boring, Derek, but he, um, you could almost guarantee every day at training what you were going to do. Yeah, he was so disciplined. There was a routine that he did Monday to Friday, 
Um, I literally stuck with it all the time. He was very measured in what he did. Um, I complete new way of looking at football and again, in a modern way. So that was in uh, 99 going into 2000. Yeah. And um, I, would, I would say that the vast majority of teams now do similar ways to what he was doing back then. Now, you know, in uh, very much more a, a scientific approach to it, uh, very much more analysis, um, very much more um, theoretical rather than practical at times. A lot of passing and ball retention in the training, not so much the physical aspect of it as much. It was more about the ball. Um, you know, so it was a breath of fresh air, to be honest with you. Yeah, and uh, you, you'd of course join Hibs in, in 2000, not so long after. Uh, massive club, of course, and at that age, at that time of your career, Ian. How did that move come about? And is it, I guess, it's quite interesting, you... Derek. Ah, it, was, it was very interesting. Jimmy Calderwood, you asked about him earlier on, and yeah. uh, Jimmy was, um, as the day is long, an honest guy. And he, um, I played the first four or five games when Jimmy came in. Mm-hmm. But uh, the second game, he, uh, after the second game, he brought me in and he says, Ian, he says, just to let you know, he says, I've been in the club a couple of weeks now. He says, I, I look about, you know, I, I do a bit of analysis on, on my players. He says, but just to let you know, I always bring in my own goalkeeper when I, I come to a football club. And he says, you're, you're 36 now, um, coming to the end of your career. He says, you know, I've done a bit of research to you. He says, you've got all your, your uh, badges, your... You're part of the SFA goalkeeping coaching fraternity. Mm-hmm. He says, you're the Scotland under-19 goalie coach. He says, I'm just going to be honest with you. He says, I'm bringing my own goalie in. He says, but I want you to stay at the football club as a coach. He says, but I'll not be offering you a, a playing role. Now, at that time, my knee was giving me a, a hold of time. Remember, I said at the beginning of this, yeah. this discussion that the surgeon says you'll need a, a knee replacement by the time you're 40. You know, probably by the time I was 35, 36, it was probably not far away from it at that point, yeah. even though I was still playing. So I, I, I'm, I'm very much a realist and a pragmatist when it comes to, you know, anything in life. And I, I knew I was coming to the end of my career. So uh, I, almost to the point I was saying, right, fantastic, where do I sign? So I knew that I had this opportunity to stay at Dunfermline as a, as a coach, yeah. uh, which was brilliant, fantastic. So that took a huge weight off my mind. So going into the last game of the season, Jimmy wanted me to play because there was nothing to play for the last game. He says he just wanted me to play the last game just as a final send-off. Uh, and I says, yeah, perfect, no problem. So on the road to um, down to Capelo to play Morton, um, I got a message from Blair Morgan, who was a, a football agent by this time. Mm-hmm. And he says, he says, look, he says, I, I, I work for Art McLeish. Uh, he says, I represent Alan McLeish. He says, um, he wants you to go to Hibs as a player coach, as a as a, a mentor to a couple of the young goalies at, at Hibs. He says, are you interested? So I spoke to my dad about it. And, you know, with the greatest respect to Dunfermline, um, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to stay at Dunfermline. Yeah. He says, but my old, man say, my old man says to me, he says, look, he says two things. One, Hibs, much bigger football club. Two, you live in Edinburgh, and he says, you know, you know how to do the commute, you know, over the bridge all, every yeah. day. He says, and three, probably more importantly, he says, when you go from being one of the boys on the Friday to one of the gaffers on the Monday, 
sometimes it's not quite as easy as that. And it either, you know, some guys take it really easily to, to the, or they resent it. He says, so to me, he says, I think you go to Hibs. And he says, and also, Alan McLeish wants you to go in there as a player coach. And he says, you might be able to eke out your, your playing career. Anyway, long story short, uh, that's what I did. I spoke to Alec and he says, you know, come as, come as that. Spoke to Jimmy Caldwell. Jimmy Caldwell was really um, disappointed, but understood why I did that. And I went to Hibs and I had five years at Hibs and five fantastic years, which um, I'll be eternally grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. And when you went to Hibs at the time, like you said, Alex McLeish was a the manager and there was a whole host of, I was reading some of the players out there at that time, real cracking players that had uh, the likes of, uh, Mixie Pat Linen was there, Frank Sose, Russell Latipi, every player we speak to that plays uh, with him says he's just the best player that uh, he ever played with. Um, some cracking players. Well, the, the thing about that, Derek, is again, with the greatest respect to the players at Dunfermline, and when I left Dunfermline, we had, you know, we had Ian Ferguson, ex Rangers, we had yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Stevie Crawford, we had, you know, I played through, with, you know, I had played through. Isvan Cosma, you know, David Moyes, Billy Davis. I, mean, I played with, with you know a lot of decent players at, at Dunfermline. I went I went to Hibs and I always you know I always my, my dad was always my sort of sounding block. Now bear in mind I went to Hibs as a, a player coach, not just a coach. So I was part of the training sessions and things like that. I was playing as well as coaching. And uh, I says to my old man after about the first couple of weeks of, of the pre-season when we were starting to play games, he says to me, he says, how are you finding it? I says, I'll be honest with you, Dad. I says, it's a massive step up. Mm. I, I says, the quality of the players um, and the standards that they've set is a step up to whatever I've played with. I says, I'm, I'm not saying I'm struggling, I says, but it's, it's an eye-opener. Um, and I'll talk about three players specifically here. Talk about Frank Sosie. Frank Sosie is the best player I've ever played with. Yeah. Um, Frank was the same age as me, so he was 36 at this point in time. I would love to have seen Frank when he was in his heyday because yeah. what a player. Um, read the game. I mean, you always say, you know, half the game's played up here. Yeah. In Frank's case, it was 95% of it. Was, he was so far ahead of uh, everybody else. Fantastic player. And I had the privilege of playing in a few sort of pre-season games with him and all that kind of thing. Mixu, you know, a good Bolton man, you know, uh, you know, from your background with with uh, your connections with Bolton, um, a really underrated player. Yeah. Mixu was the best target man you will ever get playing. Strong as an ox. I mean, I, I always liked the gym. I, I, I was quite. I, I liked the fitness side of the game, probably because I was I was having to protect my knee all the time. So I was probably as fit as, as any goalkeeper that I played with or against. Um, so I did a lot of gym work, probably before it was fashionable to, to do the sort of sports science bit and all that. But you look at Mixu stripped, and there's no definition to him. He's just a big, big lad. Yeah. But I was playing it compared with him. He was the strongest guy by a country mile. I mean, Yogi was a strong guy. Various other different... Nori McCarthy was a strong guy. Yogi was just a complete and utter different animal to him, uh, to them. And a, one of guys, uh, one of life's really good guys and was always going to go into the coaching side of things there. And then you come to Russell. Russell Latipi, the most skillful... Um, just a skillful player, you know. Yeah. Um, 
things he could do with the ball, you know, others could only dream of. Uh, his skill set was fantastic. His ability on the ball, um, creativeness, you know, his passing, his, his good finisher as well. People forget about that. Yeah. Good, a real good finisher as well. But so I was lucky to play in that team. But I also played in, you know, there was other players in that team that were, you know, Uli Larson, Didier Gatt. Yeah. Uli um, you know, Dela Cruz was there as well, wasn't he? The Ecuadorian. Yeah, I, yeah, Yuli came as well, you know, so all of these guys, you know, fantastic players, you know, really, really fantastic players. But then the other side of that is, because I was coaching as well, I was coaching the, the reserves and the under-18s as well, under-19 teams. So I was, I was at Hibs for um, just shy of five years, and I always say the same thing to anybody that's willing to, have, to listen to this and is interested. If Hibs we're not a selling club, which every football club in Scotland is, by the way, is a selling yeah. club. And if, if, if they were able to retain the players that I'm about to mention, I would guarantee they would have won the Scottish Premier League. And I'll just name you a, a team and you'll, work, you'll go, wow. So in my time at Hibs, so you can have two or th- any one of two or three goalkeepers. You can have Nick Cogan or Danny Anderson or, or any of the guys, Tony Cake. Stephen Whitaker, right back. <laughs> Gary Caldwell, centre half. Ian Murray, left centre half. Mm. Uli Larson, that went to Celtic, left back. Or David Murphy, that went to Birmingham City, left back. Across the midfield, you've got Scott Brown, Kevin Thompson, uh, Derek Riordan. Yeah. And, and uh, Ivan Sproul, and up front, Stephen Fletcher and Gary O'Connell. Yeah. You're not going to tell me that that team, if that stays together, doesn't win the Premier League. Yeah. Because what a team! What a team I've just described to you there. Yeah. And they were all they were all lads that came through that period when I was there, and, and I'm proud to say that I had a tiny, tiny wee interaction with them when they started their football careers. Yeah, I remember oh. when uh, Tony Mowbray had them, and they, and they they were beating, they were just thumping Rangers. I mean, I think they beat them three 0 on a couple of occasions. They were beating Celtic at Parkhead, and you're right there, Ian. I mean, they're cracking players. What a talented side they had. It's just a shame that that, that, that was just broken up. But I guess that's finances dictate, don't they? Hundred percent, and and that's why Hibs were on a, a strong footing because they were able to sell, you know, Scotty to Celtic you know, for four million or four and a half million, you know, Kevin to Rangers and, and all the rest of the players that, that moved on from there. Um, I always tell a wee story, and I don't know where Scott will ever remember this, but Scott Brown um, had just come into the reserve side at this time, and I was, I was one of the coaches now. I was now living over in Fife, and I'd had a, a big operation on my knee, and I had my leg in plaster up to my hip. So Scott had just passed his driving test. And uh, I says to him, I says, Scott, I says, will you pick me up to take me to this reserve game and, and bring me back? He says, yeah, no problem at all. So anyway, we went and we played this reserve game. And we came back. And Scott was really frustrated with himself. Because he, he, uh, when Scott first came into Hibs, we weren't really sure what position he was going to play. Yeah. So at one point, he was playing centre mid. The next minute, he was playing wide right of a four. Sometimes he was playing right wing back. So I can't remember what, what position he was playing in this reserve game, but he was getting really frustrated with himself. And I think at the time, but didn't quote me on this, but I think at the time, I'm sitting in the, the drive 
of my house in Dunfermline. Um, and I'm, he's saying to me, he says, Wasty, he says, I really have no idea what I'm doing. He says, I'm getting really frustrated. I think I'm going to give up this football game. And he, <laughs> laughing, laughing. And less than two years later, he got his big move to Celtic and, uh, and uh, you know, the rest is the his history. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. You rhymed off Derek Ryerton. Was Gary O'Connor there at the, the time as well yeah, as a yeah. young boy? Yeah, I mean, so, so Derek and Gary were the two main strikers there. Yeah, yeah, daft as brushes, but I mean, what talents, weren't they? Both, both talented, talented boys. And, and they'll be the first to say that they were, they were supported by a couple of really good players at the time. So, uh, particularly Craig Brewster took Gary O'Connor yeah. under his wing. And um, oh, I think Gary, you know, learned a lot from, from Craig. When, you know, Craig Brewster, fantastic football player, you know, and uh, a real gentleman of the game as well. And a real, a real knowledge of, of football as well. So he really helped Gary and Derek, you know, uh, go on from, to, to bigger and better things. Yeah, of course, uh, Alec McLeish would go on to uh, join Rangers and, and Frank would take over. But he sort of struggled, didn't he, uh, Frank? Did you know sort of how, how it never sort of worked? Because you think uh, yourself, it, was, it should. Well, it was, it's like a lot of these things, unfortunately, you know, in football, just because you've been a fantastic world-class player doesn't mean yeah. that you can transfer that, that skill set into management and coaching. And I think Frank simply struggled in that part, you know, and I think he's, his confidence took a real hammering and, and, you know, he was a very, very proud man. And I think, you know, because of that, he decided that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't working out. And, you know, I think Rod Petrie, the, the chairman at Hibs at the time and him were very close and were, um, so obviously it wasn't working out the way Frank wanted it to, and uh, in the results, obviously it's a results-driven game, and he was he was obviously struggling with that side of it, um, and, it and it was sad because you know you don't want to see somebody struggling like that, and it really affected Frank. It really did, yeah. but you know uh, Frank left the football club, and then Bobby Williamson came in, and uh, you know we had a, a bit of decent success with Bobby and Jerry McCabe and Jim Clark through that period as well. So. Got to a League Cup final and uh, I you know, had some decent success. At that time, you know, we were bringing through the younger players as well, the, the Stephen Whitakers, the uh, you know, the Kevin Thompsons, the Scott Browns of this world, you know, so so they were getting brought through. You know, yeah. so that, so there was a bit of a transition period that Bobby had to and Bobby also had to go through the the nightmare where the um of the remember the television rights fell through and a lot yeah. of football clubs had real, had real financial impacts on that so Bobby had to sort of manage through that process as well so that's why he had to play a lot of the young boys but again they thrived coming through it as well yeah excellent and I mean you'd uh, you'd leave was it 2005 you'd leave in our sort of roundabout yeah. way Gordon Marshall would, would, would take over is that right? Hi. so um, what happened was I think it was Operation 8 on my knee um, and, and the surgeon, and, and the surgeon said, he says, "Look, Westy, he says, you know, enough's enough." He says, "You, you need a, you need what's called a complex knee replacement, which is top and bottom." He yeah. says, uh, and, "And unfortunately, at that time, I was only forty-two. I'd stopped playing at that point, obviously." Um, but the surgeon says, he says, "Look, he says you're taking so many tablets, you know, to try and keep the pain at bay and the inflammation away." He says, you know, you've, you, you've simply got to try and get a sedentary job. He says, because the reality is, um, if I give you a knee replacement now, which you desperately need, he says, that's fine short term, 
He says, but if you go back into the football side of things, even coaching, he says, you'll wear that out very quickly. And, he's, and he says at the time, he says, you will only get between eight and 15 years out of a replacement knee before you need a new one. And he says, you only get two or three. And he says, if you do the simple maths, that would take you up to sort of mid-60s at the, at the latest. And he says, you would then probably, with the best will in the world, be on crutches or in a wheelchair by the time you're mid-60s. Yeah. He says, so he says, you know, there's no decision really to be made. So I spoke to Tony Mobley and, and Rod Petrie and explained the situation. They were very, very pragmatic, very helpful. And just says, look, you know, just stay on in the role until such times as you get yourself sorted out with whatever you're going to do, which, which I did. And um, at that time, you know, a lot of people are saying to me, you know, it's devastating news and you're, you'll be really disappointed. However, I looked at it the opposite way. Mm-hmm. If somebody says to me, you know, in June 1980, um, yeah. will, will you have 20 years playing first-team football and another five years coaching, and you'll be have a wee bit of success with uh, you know winning championships and 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 you know various different things representing your your country, and then go into the coaching side of it, reasonable success. So being in the the coaching structure of the SFA uh, and being part of that role, which set up one of the first uh, UEFA and FIFA accredited coaching badges, mm-hmm. um, and be part of the Scotland under nineteen set up a. Would you take that? You know, I would have said, would I sign up? And, and that, that's, that's the simple thing about my football career. Apart from a couple of very, very minor things, um, I can look myself in the mirror every morning and just say, I gave it my best shot as a, as a footballer and, and as a coach, and, and I was quite dedicated to what I did. Um, what you can legislate for, Derek, is, is injuries. Yeah. And my, you know, I, I lost a lot of football because of injuries, uh, and that's something you can legislate for. But you just got to get on with it. And a, and a lot of footballers have been certainly less fortunate than myself when it comes to injuries and have had to finish their careers, you know, a lot sooner than I had to. Um, so, you know, I had 25 years in the game, loved every second of it. Um, still part of the former players committee at Dunfermline Football Club. Uh, get along to East End when I can. Don't often get, don't obviously with the COVID restrictions, can't see the success that they've had at the moment. Um, but I'm looking forward to getting back to see them as soon as I can when, when, when we are able to get back in and see the games. But aye, so, you know, in 2005, when I had to, to retire from football, was it a big wrench? 100%, absolutely. However, um, my old man used to say to me, if a working man can enjoy 50% of the, the working day, he's a lucky boy. He says, so just think how lucky you are, you know, getting paid for something most guys would give their right arm to do. And I tell you, that's one of the, that's one of the things that I used to get frustrated about in football was people not giving it their best shot and not being as dedicated as, as I was because it is a short career. And if you get it right and you're lucky, you've got, you can be set for life. But there's so many players that uh, back in my day, which you think, you get a wee bit frustrated because they, they're not willing to put the hard yards in. Um, but n- nowadays, I think that's very different because of the fact that there's no hiding place in football now with the sports analysts, yeah. the sports scientists. You know, you, you don't get away with it nowadays. You, you can't get away with it. Whereas back in my day, um, playing-wise, certainly there was people that didn't, weren't probably as dedicated as they could be. But then again, there's the oldest cliche in football, isn't there? 
every one of us sitting, you know, talking about football or playing football, went to school or or had a mate that was a fantastic footballer, but he never caught, got the breaks. I would argue that's that's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. There's always a reason why Jimmy Smith never made it, and the reasons will either be injuries, not dedicated, other factors, probably drink would come into it, maybe, you know, gambling would come into it, you know, yeah. not living the lifestyle that you, you need to do to become a professional athlete, all these things. There is not too many players that play above their, their standard. And there, there are players that can play the below their standards, but there's a reason why they, they, they play below their standards. And it is one of the ones that I've just described. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to, to, to end the, the, the interview, Ian. And thank you very much for, uh, for telling us your, your story in the game. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you for, for uh, coming on. You know, you're, you're welcome. I've enjoyed every minute, man. That was episode 83 of the Talking Fitball podcast with Ian Westwater in association with On The Team Sheet. I hope you enjoyed it as ever. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all on pretty much all podcast platforms. Be also sure to check out and subscribe to the Talking Fitball website. It's talkingfitball.co.uk. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Talking underscore Fitball and we're on Facebook as well. And remember, if you want to sponsor the Talking Fitball podcast, you can do just that. Just visit the website or email us at contact at derekclarksport.co.uk. I hope you can join me again next time and I'll be chatting to the Falkirk midfielder, Murgaro Gomez. But until then, stay safe and bye for now.